Hi, Journey. How y'all doing today? Uh, how many country music fans in the room? Whoa. Wow. Did, did you know that? Yeah, we, okay. I didn't know that. Sorry. Uh, I'm not a big fan of country music. I hope that's not a big disconnect for you. Though, in all honesty, I have to say that one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my entire life was Garth Brooks. Like, that guy knows how to put on a show, country or not. And though I'm not the biggest fan of country music, it's really easy for me and, frankly, anybody else to connect with country music. Why is that? Well, because country music is all about storytelling, right? Country music tells stories like, my dog died, my girlfriend left, I blew the tranny in my pickup truck, the beer's warm, the fish weren't biting, the train was rumbling, the horse was galloping, the phone was ringing, and she was the queen of my double-wide trailer with the polyester curtains and the redwood deck. Sometimes she runs and I've got a trailer, dang her black heart and her pretty red neck. That's exactly, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Country music just tells these really gripping, gritty stories just like that. And it resonates with us because of the stories that it tells and because our life is a story. A story, frankly, that isn't finished until we breathe our very last breath. And often, faith in God sounds a lot like country music, doesn't it? These gritty, real, honest, gripping stories, life happens kind of stories. And in the midst of our stories, there's God always present, wanting to mold us and shape us, desiring to be known in our lives, made known to the world through our lives as our story unfolds and is written, faith sounds like country. Give the band a huge welcome and listen into this. They said I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me, and a moment came to stop me on a dime. I spent most of the next days. Looking at the x-rays And talking about the options And talking about sweet time I asked him when it sank in This might really be the real end How's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what you do? I went skydiving I went rocking mountain climbing I went I went skydiving, 
did an awesome job and you should cheer huge it's taken us 10 years to do one country song it's going to be another 10 before there's another one so drink it in folks drink it in scripture's full of people's faith stories isn't it folks who didn't just believe in god but they actually believed god And when you thumb through the scriptures, if there was ever a person whose story sounded like country, it's the story of a woman named Ruth. Just listen to the first opening verses of the book that is her namesake, Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malion and Kilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. When they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah. Now, your eyes want to play a trick on you there, and you want to think that Oprah's in the Bible. She's not. It's Orpah. And the other, a woman named Ruth. Don't be fooled. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Now just tell me that that doesn't sound like country. Real, raw, unvarnished, life happens kind of stuff. And in her book entitled The Gospel of Ruth, a woman by the name of Carolyn Custis James talks about how great we Christians are often at pretending, right? Like we have this idea that stuff like what happened in Naomi's world isn't supposed to happen in our Christian, scrubbed up, 
perfect world. And so we resort to covering up stuff in our lives for the sake of the gospel. We don't want anyone to know that things aren't working out so well for we Christians sometimes. And so we feel compelled to smooth things over for God, send in our best PR and spin teams to deal with embarrassing questions on God's behalf, and polish up, shine up God's reputation. We have this notion, many of us, that it's our Christian duty to always look our best, never show our flaws, give the world the airbrushed, photoshopped, retouched version of ourselves in a feeble attempt to prove that the Christian life always works perfectly. Ever been there? I have. Maybe you have too. I spent the last couple of years in a major, and I mean major, depression. A major depression brought on by a nagging and unrelenting sense that God was doing nothing but letting me down and letting me down and letting me down over and over and over again. And I was a holy, I don't even know how how else to say it other than to say I was a holy cow mess. It's country music day, I can say it like that. I was a holy cow mess. I felt like my prayers were bouncing off every ceiling I prayed under. I felt that God didn't care. I felt that I was being punished. I don't know why, but I felt like I was being punished. I felt like our daughters were being punished. I felt like our whole family was being punished. And I'd just stand back and I'd shake my fist at God sometimes when I could muster the strength and I'd say, God, how in the world could you possibly get us into this and look at the holy cow mess? Look at this mess. And the weight of the betrayal that I felt dragged and dragged and dragged me down a little more and a little more and a little more every single day that passed. And my world got darker and darker and darker and darker. I didn't actually even ever feel like I could be myself because the real true myself that I was in that season over those years of time was sad and hurt and angry and bitter and I couldn't let that monster out and so I just tried to cover it up hide it pretend like everything was hunky-dory let me tell you there wasn't a chance of that happening because under pressure which is one of the occupational hazards of pastoring that hurt and anger and bitterness would come squeezing out and cause all manner of collateral damage to people who I really loved and really cared deeply about and let me tell you about weekends back in that season of time. Uh, For some of it, it was just Sundays. For some of it, it was Saturday night and Sundays. And I dreaded weekends. Holy cow, I dreaded weekends. I'd sit at my desk over in my office all week long, and I'd just labor and labor and labor, trying to hear from God, the betrayer God, I felt, on your behalf, right? Like, I take this call to preach incredibly Seriously, it is so weighty to me. I know that lots and lots of you are inviting friends here who desperately you want to hear from the Lord. People you're inviting who you hope will connect with God, cross the line of faith. I didn't want to ever botch that. Didn't ever want to botch that. And so I'd press in with the Lord with everything I had as much as I possibly could even though I felt like he was the grand betrayer and I'd I'd listen and I'd listen and I'd listen and I'd type and type what I thought I was hearing from him and I'd put it all together in these sermons. I'd get it all ready and then I'd go stand right back there. Saturday nights until we didn't have those anymore and then 
Sunday mornings it would start and before every one of these gatherings and I'd just be trying to get myself ready back there and the band would be leading us in worship and I would be right back there in that dark corner on the edge of some really unhelpful episode week after week after week. And I sort of stand back there and silently pray like, Lord, if the floor just opened up right now and swallowed me up, it'd be like sweet. I have no idea who's gonna preach, but it'd be sweet if it wasn't me, right? Because there wasn't another option, right? Uh, it would come time and the bumper video would end and I'd step out here. This is the very last place I ever wanted to be in that season of time. The last place in the world I felt like being was right here. But I'd smile and I'd preach and I'd try to hide all of this emotion and all of this betrayal that I was feeling, all of this depression and all of this darkness that I was living in the midst of, just simmering beneath the waterline of my soul. Because what I knew I couldn't do was turn this, a gathering like this, into some big old group therapy session for myself, right? As much as I might have needed it, I, I couldn't. That isn't what you came here for. That's not what your guests came here for. Besides, who in the world was I kidding? Every single one of us has really heavy stuff that we're carrying and like, you really want mine too, right? Here, won't that be fun? Here, take this. No. And so over that season of time, years, I would stand right here and I would say stuff about God that was entirely true, but I didn't feel like it was entirely true. It didn't feel true right here. It was entirely disconnected most of the time from what I was experiencing and what I was feeling. And when a person does that, it does irreparable damage to their soul. And it just tore my soul to shreds. Week after week after week. I call it, I was gutting myself. Just picture gutting a fish. Sorry, women. Just picture gutting a fish. I was gutting my soul because I thought that's what I had to do. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. It was just, though, frankly, here's a confession for you, a masquerade. It was just, frankly, a masquerade. Now, that doesn't mean like I wasn't trying to live all of this out, not even close. I was. With everything I had, I was trying to live out the priorities and the focus and the mission of Christ day in and day out. But I was a wrung-out pastor, a shattered follower of Jesus who felt deeply and greatly abandoned by the Lord, betrayed by the Lord, trying to pretend like everything was fine because it's just supposed to be fine in Christian land, but I wasn't fine. I was a long, long way from fine. Now, here's the deal. God never, ever masquerades as something he's not. And you know something else? He asks the very same of we who call ourselves his followers, that we never ever masquerade as something that we're not. And the Bible time and time again shows us the world is fraught with peril, life is hard, not every story has a fairy tale ending. It just doesn't. Faith sounds like country. We're broken people living in a broken world and there's just no getting around the brokenness and loss and sting of this fallen world. And God doesn't shy away from it. He never shies away from tough stuff. As a matter of fact, you read the pages of scripture and you see it's almost as if God welcomes difficulty. Faith sounds like 
country. So with the time remaining, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna listen and look in on some snippets from the story of Ruth, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and we're gonna hear just how very much her story sounds like country. Along the way, we're gonna pick up some valuable lessons, I think, some valuable insights about our own stories, especially for the days and the times and the seasons when our story sounds like country. One of the first things I think that comes into view as we look at the story of Ruth is this very broad, sweeping question, is God good for me? Is God good for me? Because when we're in the midst of struggle and obstacle, when we're in the midst of country music kind of stuff, those situations cause us to ask that question, don't they? Is God really good? And then you run it out to another layer and you go, is God really good for me? And that question was the question that was at the root of the last couple of years for me. I mean, most everything in my life has gone pretty darn well. Not perfectly, but I've always felt that God's somehow, for some reason, sort of insulated me, protected me from a whole bunch of painful stuff that I could have got myself into. But then, bam, out of nowhere, here's this, what I would consider to be catastrophic kind of stuff happening. And it didn't matter in that moment that like 99% of my life experience told me that the answer to the question, is God really good, was, well, duh, yes, he is. That didn't matter. Because all of a sudden, because of current events, these gargantuan waves of doubt were crashing on my own personal life shores. Ouch. And those waves were causing me to deeply question whether the answer I thought I knew was actually the correct answer. And the same thing's true for every single one of us. And the same thing's true for a whole bunch of biblical characters. Ruth's mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi, she stood fast on the conviction, look, God is good, even when his love for her was greatly under assault. It just was. And if Naomi could land in this place where she's going, yep, God is good for me, even when his love comes under fire, then I can come out on the other side and I can go, holy cow, If he's good for her, then he's good for me. And if he's good for her and me, then he's good for you, you, all of you, every all of you on planet Earth, as a matter of fact. Yes, absolutely, God is good for you. He is. He is good for you. And understand, you know this already, but I'm just gonna raise it up anyway. Suffering and difficulty, most of the time, doesn't just begin when we start to feel the suffering and difficulty. Very often, hardship and difficulty is sown or gets sown into the fabric of our lives at some much earlier point in time. It happened with Naomi. Look at verses one and two. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. Now we're sitting in this quite comfortable, air-conditioned, climate-controlled room. Most of our stomachs are probably filled, and so it's pretty easy for us just to blow right through those words, severe famine, isn't it? We, we don't go, oh, I've been through one of those before. We don't do that. Because we don't grasp the horrors loaded up in those words. And the famine spoken of in the book of Ruth came during this really dark season in the life of the nation and people of Israel. 
It was the season when the judges led. The people and nation of Israel had fallen so far from God. Here's what the book of Judges says in 2.10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. And and we go like, how in the world is that possible that that happened? Just the next generation after these spectacular feats that they saw God do, just one generation away, the next generation, they forgot and even remember. And so against that backdrop, God raises up these judges. And these judges were meant by God to rescue Israel from their godless malaise, judges who would attempt to lead the people and nation of Israel back to God, but not all of the nation and people of Israel wanted to return to God. A whole bunch of them continued to turn their backs on him, and they spiraled downward and downward and downward. Catastrophic judgment ensued. Military invasion, government collapse, famine. The very famine that drove Naomi's family, her husband, their two sons from their home in Bethlehem, which by the way means, Bethlehem means house of bread, and there wasn't any. And drove them all the way to Moab, which is modern day Jordan, where there was food. And can you imagine the bitterness of that pill that Naomi and her family had to swallow? Huh, some promised land this is, God. Some house of bread this is, God, some chosen people, we are God, some loving God, you are. If you, God, loved us so much, why don't you intervene? Why don't you help? You could turn this around, God, so why don't you? That sounds a lot like country, doesn't it? And when it rains country, sometimes it pours country. Ruth chapter one, verse three, then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. As if life wasn't hard enough for Naomi, for her family, for her children. Now she's a single mom. Chalk that up. And if that by itself wasn't challenging enough, she's left with two sons in a foreign land where understand it would have been exceedingly difficult for them to find suitable Jewish brides for her sons to marry. And I don't know how hard they tried But in verse four, the two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, the other a woman named Ruth. And you kind of get to the other side of that text and you're like, oh, sweet, Naomi's boys found some sweet girls to marry, woo. Country wedding bells, right? This was not good, this was not cool. How many mothers of sons are there in the house? Mothers of sons, just raise your, yeah, a whole bunch of you. This is just for you. I don't care what girl your son brings home and says he's gonna marry. No matter what you think of her, no matter how bad you think she is, how unfit for your angelic son she might be, any girl your son brings home, and I mean any girl your son brings home is better than Orpah or Ruth. Any girl, take your pick. Orpah and Ruth, they're Moabites, That means, get this, they're pagan worshipers of this god, Chemosh, little g-god, remember, Chemosh, who demands ritual child sacrifices. Moms of sons, when your son brings home a ritual child sacrificer, then you can complain. (laughs) Not until then. Now, if that's not bad enough, 
this is where things really start to sound like country. The Moabites descended from the offspring of a guy named Lot and an inappropriate, very inappropriate liaison he had with his oldest daughter. Country. Sorry. Let's just suffice it to say that Moabites are distant relatives from the sketchy, shady side of Abraham's family tree. We could say it that way. These aren't women who you'd want your sons to marry. But they wed anyway. And a decade, ten years passes, and neither Orpah nor Ruth nor their husbands are able to conceive a kid. More heartbreak, more difficulty, more country. And then the unimaginable, verses four and five. About 10 years later, both Malian and Killian died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. So you know what this means. That's the end of Elimelech's family line, the end. Right there. And over the course of those 10 gnarly years, as the country music played on and on and on, we can only imagine how often Naomi pleaded with God to introduce a different, please God, introduce a different genre of music into this situation. No more country, please. And yet, despite her prayers, trouble just rained down and rained down and rained down, drowning out any hope she ever had for a new day washing away every last hope and dream she carried in her heart. And so let's fast forward a bit in the story. After all of that, Naomi decides that she's gonna go home. Where was her home? Bethlehem was her home. She's gonna go home to Bethlehem. She's gonna go there alone. What else is she gonna do? She thinks she's withered and wilted and she's like, I'm just gonna go home by myself. So she tries to talk Orpah and Ruth into going home to their own families. Just, just go away. You don't need me. I'm just a third wheel for you. So just go. Ruth won't hear of it. And in verse 14, we pick up the story. Again, they wept together. This is on the road to Bethlehem, on the road from Moab to Bethlehem. Again, they wept together. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. Orpah takes her up. She's like, okay, I'm out. See ya. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her child-sacrificing gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Stop asking me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Check this out. Your God, capital G, will be my God, capital G. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Orpah, she bails. I'm headed home. Ruth says, I'm staying. I'm sticking. And do you, under, do you grasp the significance of that? Along the way, this journey that Naomi's been on, that Ruth has joined in on, you see what happened there. God closed in on Ruth. God closed in on Ruth. And we can read this text and at first glance kind of go like, oh, Ruth is just embracing Naomi. Oh, I'm gonna stick with you. But it's way bigger than that. 
Ruth is embracing Yahweh, the one true living God here. She's embracing Naomi's God, Israel's God. This moment right here is Ruth's crossing the line of faith in God moment. This is it. She's not looking back. And there would have been all kinds of stuff flying around Ruth's conversion moment. No doubt she would have seen the difference between her family of origin and her new family who followed God. Now they weren't perfect, but you can envision the difference as they interacted with each other, with their neighbors, as they walked out this road of grief in the aftermath of three tragic deaths. And here's Ruth just taking it all in front row seat to the difference that Yahweh God makes in people's lives and she chooses him. It's you, God. I want you. And she leaves behind everything she ever knew to follow him. And the other thing she knew was that she might lose everything in this world and she didn't care because she said, look, my soul is saved and safe and I ain't looking back. She just says it, I ain't looking back. I don't have time to finish the whole story, but you ought to, this week, take a little time and read the rest of the book of Ruth. It's four chapters long. It'll take you 15 minutes, 20 minutes, the most, to get through it. And it is a fantastic, very country music kind of story. Start to finish. And if you do that, here's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find that God can take your story God can take any person's story, whatever your story is, no matter how country your story is, and he can shape it. He is, as a matter of fact, he is shaping it right now. He's shaping it. That's one thing you're gonna find. And we all really need to hear that, don't we? Because we all, every one of us has country kind of seasons in our lives. Some of us right now might be in one of those seasons A season where you're just crying out to God going, I don't get this. I don't want to get this. My whole life and world is unraveling around me. It is so dark. God, I can't handle one more day. I can't take another day of disappointment, another day of loneliness, another day of pain, another day of shat. I can't take it anymore. Some of us might be in that spot right there. And so was Naomi. Naomi. And so were so many others after her, before her. But you know what I hear Naomi saying at the end of the book of Ruth? I hear her saying, you know what, God? I didn't get that season of country music that I was in. I didn't get the why of all those incredibly difficult days, all that pain, all that loss. We can hear Naomi saying, I don't get it, but it was just a snapshot. It was just a snapshot. One season, one point in time. It might have been a long period of time. It might have been a short period of time. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why. But God, here's here's what Naomi says. I know, God, that you see the bigger picture. You, God, see the whole picture. Story, And you know what else I hear Naomi saying? I hear Naomi saying, wow. I hear Naomi saying, wow. I never, ever dreamed it would be possible that I would get to this moment. And if you read the rest of her story through the rest of Ruth, you'll see what moment I'm talking about. 
cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. And what's true is if Naomi can get there, if Naomi can get there, we can get there. Because she had every reason in the book to lose hope in God, but you know what? She didn't. She didn't. Because she and God were writing her story, just like you and God are writing your story, country parts and all. Country parts and all. I invite you to take your stuff, if you would, and set it aside, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and move into a time of prayer and reflection with the Lord, if you would. Just take to him anything that's on your heart, on your mind, something the Lord may have raised up in this time together. And you and the Lord, you just interact around that, if you would. And perhaps today you've come to the moment that Ruth came to on that road to Bethlehem. When you first hand are grasping the magnitude of God's love and grace, his pursuit of you. And perhaps today is the day for you to come home to him. Perhaps today is the day for you to cross the line of faith in him, to give your heart and life to him. If that's you, I invite you right where you're sitting to pray with me. Say, Jesus, there's absolutely nothing I can do to overcome this sin problem that I carry. I cannot save myself. And so Jesus, by faith and faith alone, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. Jesus, come. Be my savior, be my boss. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your death on the cross, for your rising from the dead, for me, for us. And here I am, all of me, trusting you, Jesus, with my everything. And if you're someone who's crossing the line of faith in Jesus today, I want you to hear this, that there's nothing in your life that matters more than that choice biggest deal. This is the biggest deal in your whole life. Jesus, honestly, when we're in those country music kinds of moments, we throw up our hands so often and we just say, why? I don't get this. What in the world? And oftentimes, God, what's true, and I'm just being brutally honest here, is we don't hear a thing from you. We don't get the answer to our question we don't see all the puzzle pieces fitting together, the tapestry weaving. We don't see it. We don't. And dang it, that hurts. And God, here's what we do. Even though it hurts, we swallow hard. And we say, I still trust you, God. I still trust that you see the whole picture, that this moment that I'm living in, this country music kind of moment, it's just a snapshot. And I trust you. And I cling to you especially because doggone it, this is hard. And doggone it, I don't know exactly what tomorrow's gonna bring. A lot of days, God, I don't even wanna know what tomorrow's gonna bring but you do. And so we hang on real tight to you. 
the one who knows, the one who goes out ahead, the one who is authoring our story with us. And Jesus, for these today who are saying yes to you being their savior, saying yes to you authoring their story, we thank you so much. What an amazing thing that you're doing in hearts and lives right here, right now. We just say thank you. We say, God, you are amazing. And we say, God, we love you and we trust you. And we're hanging on tight because you're worth it. And because you've proven yourself again and again and again, you're worth it. worth it.